0: Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter three. Colossians chapter three. Let me get my notes up here and going. Colossians chapter three. We'll read just the first four verses of Colossians. It says, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things in the earth. For your dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity that is ours to gather in Thy house. We thank you for those that you have brought. I pray that our hearts and minds are yielded vessels in thy hands, that we are open and attentive, eager to hear from your word this morning. We who are here gathered as believers, Father, we are here to become more Christ like, that uh, that work of sanctification that you are doing in our lives since the day we trusted Christ is a continuing process. And Father, we are here to see that change take place, to see Christ revealed in us uh, to our fellow believers for encouragement and strengthening, for a lost and dying world to see the Savior whom they so desperately need. And I pray, Father, that we will gladly accept thy working with your word in our hearts as you convict and convince, as you seek to change us moment by moment and day by day. Pray for that soul that may be here lost, Father, may they see their need of Christ, and may they see that he died in their place, and may they by faith come and trust him, that they may leave here with knowing the forgiveness of sin that is found in Christ, having eternal life, uh, to live with thee forever one day, and have that joy that only you can give. Do that work in each heart, and we'll thank you for what you will accomplish. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen we look at our passage this morning, Christ our life, the older I get, the longer I live as a believer, uh, studying the Word of God, living it, uh, hearing it preached, the more I am convinced that this is our life, Christ. As a former pastor, he's not really an evangelist, but he, he holds um, discipleship workshops, if you will, salvation workshops, um, helping folks uh, learn the scriptures to be able to witness to our neighbors. And uh, we had him in our church there in Wenatchee. And uh, something that he brought up as he was talking through all of this is understanding the Christ life. That's what Christianity is. That's what we are. Is it's Christ in us. The life which we live is His. And uh, it is his to be lived out in us and through us. And uh, so I've kind of picked up on that and realized that this is the Christ life. And so it begs the question, is Christ seen in us? And the more you read it, particularly, obviously, the New Testament, for it speaks of Christ, and Paul's teachings, you find very quickly that is the heart of Paul. As he seeks to see the lost saved come to Christ, to see that life begin, and then to see it nurtured and growing. And uh, we have that here with us in this passage. So again, I I ask the question, which I uh, have said I often will bring to us, a question to ponder, to think about, not just in the service, but as we leave as well, is, is Christ the center of our life? Is he, and I would take it even further, is he our life? I mean, yes, he should be the center, but he should also be the perimeter and everything between the perimeter and that center. He should be our life. As the world grows more hostile to God and his claim on all of his creation with every passing year, there is antagonism. And uh, as we've seen what is going on in our nation over the last uh, few years, and especially within this past year with the cancer, the cancel culture, it is a cancer, uh, but the cancel culture of eliminating the voice of anybody that is dissenting with the, the public mainstream, do we not realize, believers, we are soon going to find ourselves as part of the cancel culture, if we haven't already? Because the message of salvation, the message of Christ at least initially is it a f- pleasing message to hear I mean do any of did any of us really like being told you're a sinner and in your sin you stand condemned to spend an eternity in hell that's not does that sound appealing? That first part of the salvation message is not. I mean, we can get very offended. I mean, I did as a young 11, 12-year-old junior high boy hearing it for the first time. I thought, I'm a pretty good kid. I don't run with the bad guys. I'm trying to do what my mom and dad want me to do, especially when they're around. Um, I try to do the best I can with school. I'm a good kid, and here's this preacher standing up there telling me I'm a sinner, I'm breaking God's law, and I'm, I'm, I'm bound for hell. I didn't like it. And so many a, t- many a Sunday I would lift the blinds in the trailer and wave when Brother Vernon brought that bus into the property to pick us up and honk the horn. And no sooner would he pull out than I'd get up and grab the cane pole and go the 75 feet or so to the creek side and I'd go fishing. Because the fish didn't tell me anything like that. Hopefully they would bite, often they didn't. But, you know, that first part of the message of salvation isn't pleasant. And the world doesn't, I mean, I'm sure most of us didn't like to hear that. It was the truth. But we didn't necessarily like to hear that. And the world is to the point of, if you're not saying what I like, then then forget it. Well, there's more to this. Yes, we are sinners. Yes, in our own sin, we're condemned to spend an eternity in hell. But there is the good news about this. There's a Savior who died in your place for that sin. And he is the remedy to this problem. Whether you want to acknowledge it or not, he is the remedy. And unfortunately, I I dare say we're going to see ourselves at a point where people don't want to hear us and will do what they can to try to cancel our message. Does that mean that we stop? I trust that we never will but we will be like the uh, disciples in Acts chapter 8 as Paul, Saul is persecuting the church in Jerusalem. The pressure is so intense that they leave town, but they don't leave town quietly. They didn't hang their heads down and say, well, what's the use of serving God? What's the use of proclaiming the message of salvation? We're Our our fellow believers are being cast into prison. They're being tortured. They're doing all of this. So let's just be quiet. I'm glad Luke tells us they went everywhere preaching the word. They couldn't stay at home, the pressure in Jerusalem was too much. But they didn't hang their heads low and say, What's the use? The world obviously doesn't want my message. No, they still went with the message. And the gospel spread. I mean, yes, it was a bad thing in a sense, but yet it was a good thing because the church in Jerusalem had, should have been giving the message all over. They had the Great Commission. But all you see at the beginning is they're there preaching the word in Jerusalem. How about the rest of Judea? Samaria, the uttermost part of the earth. They hadn't started that yet. It took a Saul to stir that up and get them moving. Get their marching orders in place and out they go. So there is going to be a time when I dare say we are going to have that happen to us. We will will be part of that cancel culture. They're not going to want to hear the message. But may we stand true to him and continue that message, even though there is the antagonism to it. I mean, we live in a country where we have so enjoyed the freedoms. I think of believers in Myanmar with the military coup that has taken place. There is word getting out. There is hardships that are going on. For all of them, it's not just, you know, it's not religious persecution as such, though Myanmar has been on the religious persecution side of things, but they are in dire straits, and I trust that we are praying for the country, pray that the world would take notice, put pressure to bear on that military coup, but also pray for our believers. The last class I taught in India, I had several students from Myanmar, in that class. And so they are very much at the heart as I consider these things and know they are being affected adversely as they are serving the Lord in their home country. And I trust the Lord will keep them safe and in that opportunity be able to preach the gospel in ways that they maybe had never imagined for the door to be opened. But that antagonism is there and we have the ability to Bear up and and proclaim the truth, but understanding, where does that strength and all of that come from? It comes from Christ. Kind of coming back to where we need to be in the introduction. The message is Christ. It's not us. And our Christian living is not about us either. Our Christian living is about our Savior who saved us. It's his life. And I want us to look at that this morning because apart from him, who are we? What are we? We're really not much of anything. But with Christ, we have everything. And what a joy to stop and consider that because the Lord Jesus Christ is our life. And as we look at this passage and considering Christ our life, as Paul speaks to the Colossian church here, he starts off with saying, If ye then be risen with Christ. Now it sounds like he's asking a question, if you will. Or, or putting it in a way that there's, um, in our English, as if you may not be. The Greek construction is, it is a first class conditional statement, meaning that there is truth here. And sometimes we would translate it, since ye then be risen with Christ. So he's noting, you are believers. You that are risen with Christ. And so it does make it hard at times, to, You know, as obviously as anybody that knows foreign languages, things are lost in the translation. Because both languages don't necessarily have the same structure. And uh, that is somewhat of the case here If we have, if ye then be risen with Christ. Well, the understanding is you are risen. Because he is talking to believers. And as believers, we are risen with Christ. Our salvation is our Savior. Paul brings that up. He brings up the fact that he's talking to believers so he is speaking, first of all, of the salvation that was found in Christ. Christ is the means of our salvation. It is his sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. It is God the Father giving his Son into the world to be that redemption. We have, you know, John 3.16 through 18. 3.16, I trust we all know. We could all quote it by, from memory. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. What a a joyous message to give to someone. But as we give that, they also have to understand, why did God give His Son? A lot of people will acknowledge Easter, crucifixion, all of those things, of course, the birth of Christ. But it's, okay, so why, why did he suffer and die on the cross? Why did he rise three days later? Well, he did that for you. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, why would I need to believe in him? What, what about what he did? Why, why is there cause for me to believe that? Thankfully, Christ continues talking to Nicodemus. He says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Paul, uh, Christ was instructing Nicodemus about himself because Nicodemus was curious and was willing to be honest with what was going on. Unlike some others in the Sanhedrin who were blinded by their own hatred to Christ, that they weren't willing to accept what they saw at face value. But Nicodemus was. And we see that there at the beginning of John chapter 3. And we have Christ explaining to him, I'm come... Because you stand condemned in your own sin. And I have come to give you life. I have come to give you pardon. He's going to die on the cross bearing the penalty of our sins in his own body on the tree. And if we will believe that that's why he came, there's salvation. Paul to the Romans in Romans chapter 10 notes this. He says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Coming to Christ is understanding that he died in my place for my sins. It is personal. Yet it is global. It is universal. That offer of salvation is to any and all, whosoever will come. Let him drink of the water of life freely, as I kind of paraphrase another passage. But Christ is our salvation. Ye then be risen with Christ, you that are risen with Christ. He starts with that premise because the rest of this makes no sense unless you are a believer. And so Paul starts with that. Our salvation is our Savior. He's the one who is my substitute. He died in my place for my sin so that I might have His life. And in that great salvation that He has given, He's taken up residence in me that His life may be lived out. We move on in our passage. We have our searchings. We have two imperatives given to us, two commands. As he continues, he says, If ye then be risen with Christ, or you that are, here are two imperatives, commands for us to do seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. We have our searchings. You're a believer. It's our Savior. You have two searchings. What are they? Our Savior. Seek those things which are above. Where? Who? Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Are we seeking those things? That word seek means to have the idea of seeking in order to find, to crave. It's also used of to demand. In other passages. Christ to those that were there on the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 says, but seek ye first. Same word. I mean, will you say, well, yes, it is. They both say seek, yes. It's the same Greek word. Christ is using the same word that Paul is when he says seek, crave. Those things are above. But he says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Again, I trust a verse that we often memorize. What is, And I'll open it up. You can speak. What are the these things that he's talking about? These things shall be added. What's in the previous verses that were of such a concern? Worldly, thing Worldly things are, neat, are Physical needs, food, clothing. Those are the things we're concerned about as humans, are they not? We like to have a roof over our heads. I appreciate you praying for us that we will get a roof over our heads soon. We have a lead. We seek to have food on the table, clothing on our backs. God is telling us, hey, I'll take care of you. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, those things shall be added. I'll take care of those. You do what you're supposed to do. Seek me. Follow God. Take care of the spiritual aspect of things in your life, of seeking me. I'll take care of those physical things for you. That's easy. Seek after these things. Paul to the Corinthians uses the same word in 1 Corinthians 4 2. Moreover, it is required, there's our word, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Now, Paul will go on and address that, but who are the stewards? Go ahead and raise your hand. We're all stewards. Where are the stewards? What was a steward? A steward was a man hired, or it could be a slave, who was in charge of his master's goods. The goods were not his own, but he had a job to do. Joseph in the Old Testament to Potiphar was his steward. The belongings of Potiphar were all in Joseph's hands. Potiphar didn't even know what he owned. He had such confidence that Joseph was doing the right thing. But Potiphar's goods, his livelihood, was in Joseph's hands to take care of. And he faithfully discharged the office that was given to him. It is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. God calls on us. We are stewards of what he has given to us. It's not our own. The life we have in Christ is Christ. And he has entrusted it into our care. And we are to be found faithful, serving, living for him. We're to be seeking those things which are above. Our hearts, our minds set... On those things. Not to be of such a heavenly mind to be of of no earthly good, but to be such of a heavenly mind that we are of earthly good because we're helping others to see here's why. Why, I, I trust that it would be said of us, why are you always talking about Christ? Well, because He is my life, because He has done so much for me. He has saved me. He keeps me. He takes care of me. That's why I talk much about him, because of what he has done for me. So why should we not talk about him? And our hearts and minds should be set there. He goes on in verse 2, the second imperative, the second command, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. That is, be minding, to direct one's mind to a thing strive for. So we are to seek and to set on those things which are above, on our Savior, on our God, be minding those things. Again, back to Matthew, to uh, that earlier passage in Matthew chapter 6, as he's talking about those things. But he says, "...lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also." Christ lays it pretty well to them, reminds them, where is our treasure? Because where our treasure is, that's where our heart is going to be. If our treasure is on earthly things, that's where our heart is going to be. Our heart is to be focused on things above. Our treasures are to be laid up above. Those treasures are eternal. You know, we may have treasures upon the earth, if you will, but... I trust that they have not captured our heart in the sense that he's bringing out here. Because the things that we have in this life, one, do we take them with us? The fortunes of the world aren't going to go with those that possess it. Whether it's Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or any other fabulously wealthy person who has no idea what in the world to do with all their income, they're not taking it with them when they die. It's going to be left. As believers, as we serve our God, as we faithfully do what he's called us to do, there are treasures being laid up for us. We may die being a nobody, and most of us will. I mean, I seriously doubt that the day that I pass away, any large portion of the world's going to mourn my passing. Britain has just mourned the passing of Prince Philip. Most of the world knows about his passing, because he was the husband to the Queen of England. I seriously doubt that this, my death is going to make headline news like that. I'm not of that stature as far as any public entity. My family will mourn. The church that I will be a part of at that point will mourn. I trust it'll be First Baptist Church here in Columbia Falls, but the Lord knows that. But apart from those, the rest of the world isn't going to know anything. Doesn't bother me, because what's being laid up for me in heaven is going to last forever. Those crowns that Christ speaks of and others in the scriptures that are to be given to us for things that we have been able to accomplish for our Lord in this life are waiting for us. Yes, to be placed at his feet as we see in the book of Revelation. Gladly. Christian living to me is one of the greatest things to understand. The work that God does through us is his work. And yet he rewards us. Go, go figure. I'm not the one that leads someone to the Lord. I can't change your heart. I'm not the one that changes the life of a believer. Though we often, you know, attribute it to that. That person led me to the Lord. That person helped me through a, a struggle that I had. But we helped. Who was the one that did the convicting and convincing on the inside? God himself. God the Holy Spirit is the one that brought us to the Savior as he convicted and convinced us of our sinfulness and our need of trusting Christ. And yet God tells us he's going to reward the person that gave you the word. And all he did was give you the message of salvation. We really didn't do anything in one sense. I mean, yes, giving the Word of God is doing something, but it's, I've given it to you. It's now up to you to do something with it. And yet, as God deals in your heart with that Word, God blesses me because I was a willing vessel. You're a willing vessel. To serve our Lord and our our minds and hearts are to be set on those things. So that we can be of help to those around us. To be of an earthly good. So we have our salvation, our Savior. Our searchings, which is to our Savior. To be minding those things. I love what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. He says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. I've not arrived. I'm not there yet. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I transport toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying to the Philippians pretty much what he is saying here. Search. Seek. There's what God has for us, waiting for us. There's Christ ahead of us. And we're to be striving for that. It's an athletic term here. It speaks of running like a track runner running for the finish line. His goal is that finish line. And he will stretch himself to go across it before the next person, if they're right there. We're to be striving for that. Seeking after our Savior, our God. Our stance. Verse 3. For ye are dead. You're all salvation. This all thing is to bring us to the point of understanding we're dead. Say, but no, I thought you said we're alive in Christ. (laughs) Yes. Yes. But we're dead. It says, For ye are dead. It speaks of of an event that happened in the past, the Greek verb tense here. For ye are dead. What event, if it's referring to an event that happened in the past, what is it referencing? Our salvation. Say, but I thought Christ made us alive when we trusted him. Yes, he gave us a new life in Christ. But we are dead to the old life. Because Christ died for that old life, that sinful life. Romans chapter 6, Paul kind of puts it this way to the Romans. Verses 7 through 12. For he that is dead is freed from sin. That's pretty understandable. Do dead people sin? Physically dead people don't sin. There's no sin going on in the various cemeteries around town. There's nothing. It is dead there as far as sin is concerned. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, and we are, I think again I didn't look, but I would imagine it's a first-class conditional statement. If we be dead and we are dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. Is Christ going to die again? Nope. He died once for us. And he ever liveth to maketh intercession for us, as we see elsewhere, but let's let's continue our passage here. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, in the same manner, understanding what Christ did In dying on the cross, in our place for our sin, but rising again the third day, in like manner, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. And he will go on and continue speaking on that thought. But he gives us that idea. Christ died, was buried, and rose again. Giving us a new life in him. We are to follow, if you will, some of that example and understand. In Christ, we died to our old sinful life. The shackles of sin have been broken. Or to put it another way, the power of sin in the life of a person, was broken when Christ redeemed us. We still have the presence of sin, yes. And we have to deal with that on a daily basis. And he will talk about that through the rest of chapter 6. And I always encourage people with my study of Romans for teaching elsewhere. Chapters 6, 7, and 8 need to be read together. And when we fully understand what Paul has there for us, it's wonderful. But we are to reckon ourselves, consider ourselves dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the life that has broken the power and the presence of sin. It is his life that did that. And he has willingly given us that life. And so, yes, the power of sin has been broken. Its presence is still here, but it no longer is to be reigning over us. And Paul will continue in that passage to speak of, don't let sin reign, but you are going to be a servant. Either you're going to serve sin, or you're going to serve God. You can't do both. And Christ has given you the power to serve Him. And if we're serving Christ, we can't be serving sin. We still have that conundrum, yes, because sin is present with us. And He will deal in that dilemma in chapter 7. And then He gives us chapter 8. It's the Holy Spirit in you, folks. It's Christ. It's God that gives the power to overcome that. Does it mean that we will be sinless? One word? I wish in this life I could say that that will happen. There's coming a day when it will, when we're in heaven. But as we see 6, 7, and 8 lived out in our lives, and really the rest of the New Testament in one sense, we will see that we sin less. Two words. Because if we're following Christ, we can't be following the world. We can't be subjected to its king if our king is Christ. He is our stance. For we are dead, but our life is hid with Christ in God. Our life is hid with Christ in God. We cannot be affected in one sense, if you will. We are concealed, remained locked away with Christ, as someone has said, no hellish burglar can break into that combination. What a joy to understand. That being hid with Christ is something that took place, yes, in our salvation, and it has continuing results. We are hid. Part of that salvation that God has given to us is we've been hid in Christ. We're with Him, and He with us. There is that blessed union that is, yes, in one sense, rather mysterious. I don't fully understand it, and I can't fully explain it. But I know that I'm in Christ, and Christ is in me. And it is a wonderful, joyous life. Paul, earlier in Colossians, said it this way. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Talking about the salvation that we have in the great mystery, that here it is, God would offer salvation completely and fully to Gentiles. Something that really wasn't known, that was a mystery. The Old Testament had who? The Jews. They're God's chosen people. Now, yes, they were to be a light to the Gentiles, and they failed. But the message of salvation came primarily to the Jews and was to be through the Jews. In the New Testament, with the rejection of the Jews of their Messiah, their Savior, God opened that same message of salvation and took it to the Gentiles. Something, again, that was unknown in the Old Testament. The the New Testament church is unknown in the Old Testament. It is part of that mystery. But he mentions here that what is that mystery? It is that Christ is in you. Even you Gentiles. And to the most part, I believe that's probably all of us here. I haven't heard that we have someone that is Jew by birth, that is a believer. But we have that blessed message that's been given to us that we're in Christ. Christ is in us. That is our stance. We're hid with Christ and God. We're dead to the old life. May we not let its presence empower us, or be empowered by it, be enslaved by it, because that power was broken, and we have someone new to follow, our Savior. That's our standing. We're in Christ. God sees us there. That's how God sees us as believers. We're in Christ. We're seated with Christ in the heavenlies, as Paul tells the Ephesians. God reckons us there already because Christ is there. What a joy to understand that. God sees Christ in us because we're hid in Him. Lastly, verse 4 our station, our Savior. It says, When Christ, who is our life, what well, we've been kind of getting at this whole passage. Christ, our life. Notice the who is is in italics. means it's not there in the original language. Our translators supplied it to help us understand. So if we take that out, it says when Christ, our life. He is our life. And all of what he's just been saying helps us to understand that and put it into a proper focus that as we seek and set on those things above, Christ indeed, because we are dead and we are hid in him, he is our life. And as such, it is a wonderful life. How does he become our life? Christ in his earthly ministry, I believe, was trying to help his disciples, those that were following him, understand this by some pictures. In John chapter 6, he he puts it this way. As he has a congregation, he has fed the 5,000. They're listening to him. And he said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Christ is the bread of life. He will go on and continue in that passage and get to the end and understanding that his words are what gives life. The word, the blessed book we have in front of us is our bread. Not just reading the Gospels in the life of Christ, but reading it all. It's how we learn what God has for us how we are to live. He instructs us in every passage and helps us along the way. By examples, yes. Bad and good. But it's always pointing us to our Savior. It's bringing us to Christ. Showing us that He is the bread of life. Christ, in a couple chapters before, in John chapter 4, as He speaks to the Samaritan woman at the well, again, trying to direct her into What she needs brings it up again, a spiritual truth with an earthly illustration that she just kept the earthly side and not catching on, but she eventually does. But he says, Jesus answered and said unto her, whosoever drinketh of this water, referring to the well, Jacob's well, where they had met. But whosoever drinketh of the water, or excuse me, whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. That physical well, you're going to have to come back to again. I'm not here to quench your physical thirst. I'm here to quench a spiritual thirst. He continues. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water of life that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into life or into everlasting life. Reminding her, he's the water of life. The thirsting, the longing that we have in us as humans that we, before we trusted Christ, we may not always understand. As Dr. Bob Jones Sr. said in his day, man is incurably religious. They know there's something beyond just them. And they're searching, longing, seeking for that fulfillment, for that filling that emptiness, whatever you want to call it. That's missing. Christ says, I'm here to fill it. I'm here to take care of that thirsting that you have. And I will satisfy it. It will be a well of water springing up into you, into life everlasting. I will take care of that longing. I will satisfy it completely. And Christ does that. In John chapter 15, he, again, illustrating it, helps us in another way. John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine; ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. Gave the illustration of a vine and the branches for, for vineyards. He, lets us know very clearly: we're the branches; he's the vine. The vine is the main stalk, if you will. And the branches get their sustenance from the vine. We get our substance as believers from Christ. We are to abide in Him. You take the branch off, is the branch going to produce grapes when it's removed from the vine? It's not. I can bear testimony to that. We have at the parsonage where we're at, there are three grapevines back there. Pretty soon they'll start to sprout we'll get some strong winds and until they're well seated they can easily snap off and i've never seen a one that snapped off and has fallen on the ground laying there ever produce grapes never why because they're not abiding in the vine they're not attached to it we're to abide with him he and us That is our station, Christ, our life, to abide in him. Paul to the Galatians says it this way, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That is the Christian life in one verse. That is, if you will, the truth of all the New Testament brought into one verse. We had a dear old lady, Grandma Youth, that that was her verse. She would remind us often in testimony time. And how true. True. Understand the truth that is here and see it lived out. That's what Paul is addressing to the Colossians. Because all these elements he's being addressed here, I am crucified with Christ, for ye are dead. Nevertheless, I live. Your life is hid with Christ in God. Yet not I, I'm not the one living, it's Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh... I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is a life lived by faith. Have we seen our Savior? Not with our physical eyes. I've never seen the Savior who saved me. We live by faith. Everything about the Christian life is by faith. And there's no better way to live. Because we have the reality that Christ abides within us, helping us to understand that. Yes, that is a mystery to a lost and dying world. They don't understand it. Christians gathering ourselves together on a Sunday and Sunday night and Wednesday doesn't make sense to the world. It never will. Because they have not that faith to understand. They have to take that first step of faith. Trust Christ. See him as your savior. Understand that he died in your place for your sins. Take that step. Have the Christ's life now in you and you will start to understand why we gather. Why we're here. Why we enjoy the fellowship with fellow believers. Because we're crucified with Christ, but it's not us living, it's Christ living. And we are doing it by faith in Him. Do we know Christ this morning? If we do... What a joy to live that life by faith. He doesn't want us to live in our own strength. We can't do it. He's given us the strength to do so because it's Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's Christ's power that has given us the power to overcome sin. It's all of Christ. So may we make and understand that Christ is much To the believer because he is our everything. Have we by faith come to a saving knowledge of him who died for us? I trust we have. If you haven't, I offer you that offer of salvation. Come to him. Believe that he died in your place for your sins. And he will give you his life. A new life in him question for us believers as we consider all of this are we comfortable with the image we give of Christ I hope we are really honest with ourselves and and would say no because we all are a work in progress has Christ been formed completely in any of us Not in this life. We are all a work in progress. And may we always understand that. In this life we will never arrive. Paul stated it. Not that I have apprehended. I haven't reached it. Paul the Apostle. A life that Would do well for us to say yeah you want to live like a Christian look at the life of the Apostle Paul but the Apostle Paul would tell us follow me because I'm following Christ there's where our focus is I've not arrived I'm still a work in progress we all are so I trust that we as we come to that idea we would say ah there's work to be done and I want the work to be done it's one thing to admit it it's another thing to then be willing God work in my life I'm not there yet help me to continue on Christ is my life and I want it reflected that Christ is seen in me. Let's pray. Father, we come to Thee. We thank You for the time that we've had in Thy Word, for the instruction that You give to us. We pray now for the Holy Spirit, that He would be at work in our hearts. We know that He is. And I pray that as believers who are gathered here, that we are truly yielded to Thee. As we consider Christ our life, Father, you may reveal places that are thin, a little threadbare for Christ to be seen. If it is sin in our life, may we seek thy forgiveness. If it's an area of weakness that has been revealed, Father, may we seek thy strength to bear up To see Christ more noticeable, if you will? Father, for that soul that's lost, may you draw them unto Thee this morning. May they not leave until they have a full assurance that their sins are forgiven in Christ, that they have a new life in Him, a life that is everlasting and find themselves at peace with you. Father, we do ask that you would be at work. And may we go forth encouraged that Christ may be seen in us as we go forth from this place. In Jesus' name we pray.